right, here we are. Welcome back to the Strongest Tribe podcast. Lydia, how are you doing? How am I doing? I am excited to be here as usual and I'm recovering from a bit of illness. So I'm very glad to be on the other side of that or nearing the other side, which is exciting. Um, And I'm excited to be just bringing another podcast to you guys today to all our favorite listeners that make the show happen. Feeling very grateful. So yeah, that's my little summary. What about you? Great summary. Yeah, I'm okay. I feel like I am you like a week ago, um, currently in the sickness. So look, not many (laughs) healthy vibes around us today. So hopefully there's not too much coughing and spluttering throughout. We're going to put that to the side. We're going to just bring the energy. We're going to forget about all of that and just radiate health for you today. Hope you're all doing well. Hopefully you're all feeling better than we are. Um, But Lydia, apart from that, tell us about your last couple of weeks in terms of your running. Um, Oh my goodness. Oh, wow. Well, uh, if you haven't seen the Instagram, you guys wouldn't know, but I assume most people have, but if not, anyway, we had Melbourne Marathon Festival last weekend, which was super exciting. We've been looking forward to it for ages. And as you probably know, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, I was hoping to crack the 40 minutes and I did not crack it, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, I, yeah, that's just, that's the truth. I didn't do it. I was eight seconds off and unfortunately my watch told me, which is just (laughs) like, it's such a classic excuse, isn't it? Like my watch said it was (laughs) 10.2. So I actually did a PB. It's just one of those things. It's whatever time it is when you cross the finish line. And I'd love to be like, well, I actually ran blah, blah, blah. But you know what? I didn't. And that's okay. But it was actually quite funny because I, I, well, I thought it was hilarious. I'd love to like watch the race video of me finishing because there was this sort of like big arcade thing at the very beginning of the stadium. And I was like checking my watch, like the last two Ks, like so constantly, like looking down my watch. Okay. Like I'm so close. I'm on track. I'm on track. I reckon I thought I was 20 seconds up and I was like, I just have to hold this. I can even drop a little bit if I want, but I was like, nope, I've got this. Like my last K was 345 pace. And obviously my finishing time was just over 40 minutes. So it was a good last K. And I was like really excited. I was like, here I am. Like I'm coming into the stadium, (laughs) into the MCG. And I saw this big like arch. Is it an arch or an arcade? I don't know. It's definitely not arcade. Also not an arch. I think. What is it? Like a a finishing? Like a a banner? But it wasn't a banner. No, it was like a big like. sturdy. Like imagine like an arch, like a big arch. But arches are like round on top, aren't they? This was Well, okay. A a squared arch. You're so fussy with the words. Anyway, there was this big squared arch. It said Melbourne Marathon Running Festival. You have square and arch in the same description. They're two different object shapes. And there were people shouting and cheering. (laughs) And like there was music played. And I was sprinting my little heart out. I was like, I've done it. I've done it. I sprinted past all these people. And then I realized that was not the finishing shoot. (laughs) And I still had like 70 meters to go. And my heart just broke and I was like no like you often see people do that and you just have to have a little giggle it's like oh dear like come on use your eyes a little bit but I think (laughs) I was very tunnel vision the whole race like I actually was not very well which you guys I just updated you on before but yeah I think Saturday the day before I was like really trying to deny the fact that I didn't feel well but in my heart of hearts 
I was like, mm, this is not feeling too crash hot, but that's okay. And then the night before, didn't sleep well, obviously like worried about being sick. And then on the day, feeling very under the weather. So I think I don't want to harp on about being unwell and like all of that because I'm still very, very stoked about the race um, conditions considered. But even still, even if I had been well, um, that still counts as a PB. So I'm very stoked. And I'm also just so excited because it just means the next one's going to be even better. And I like, I really genuinely like there was a little bit of heartbreak. I mean, not completely, but just that feeling of being like, oh, come on. I was so close. And just that annoyance. Cause I was like, I wasn't well, but I just, I pushed so hard and I thought I'd done it and then I had it and just that frustration. But at the same time, I was like, this is still like the fastest I've ever run and not ideal conditions. And I'm so, so excited to go out, do it again with another block of training and being healthy, obviously, like, you know, there's always risk and luck and all that stuff with actually being healthy in the day. So that's just life sometimes, but really excited to redo whenever that may be. So that's my, that's my summary of Melbourne, which. Great. Yeah. Um, Very proud of you. Thank you. Very impressed. And it is just exciting because there's just going to be another opportunity. Imagine if you did it, then what? Like, you know, you need I know. something else to to focus on. Once you hit 40, like you're going to retire. So I know, you may as well just it. not quite get it. But also, yeah. isn't it so funny that like these barriers are so important? Like what's mm. the difference between eight seconds? Really? If it I wasn't know. At 40, it wouldn't <laughs> matter. Like it's such a funny thing. If you had got That's like so weird. 40 and 36 versus like 40, 28, like. Yeah. No one would even think about that as a difference. But if it's yeah. 408 versus 3959, it's such a significant thing. So yeah. very strange. That's just how we are wired, I guess, with numbers. But yeah. great effort from you. And yeah, you should be proud of yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, it's a weird thing. You, In fact, I was looking at the Berlin Marathon times and you can see there was like this graph of the spread of all the times and it showed this like dramatic spike in the number of finishers who came in just under three hours and just under four hours and just under four and a half hours Mm. or whatever the times were. And it's so interesting, isn't it? And it's that same thing where, you know, the four minute mile, like couldn't get broken. Everyone was so close. And as soon as someone breaks it, then there's this big spike in people breaking it. And it's just, it's so interesting how the mind is obviously so powerful and the way we perceive different times are like real barriers in our head and our and our body responds to that. So it is very interesting to just reflect on that and observe all of that. And I think if anything, it just makes you more excited. Like it's kind of cool that we have this weird thing around a number. Like it is also a little bit meaningless, but at the same time, it's kind of fun and kind of cool. And I guess that's the whole point of like, well, not the whole point, but like an element of racing and sort of setting goals, which, yeah, I guess in the scheme of things, it's all a bit of nothing, right? But it's, it's kind of just what we do for fun. It is so strange, isn't it? It's like sometimes these goals are like so significant in our life, but then you like look back and you're like, what are we doing? We're just like running really hard to like get a number that's like a few seconds less than another number. I like know. it's so weird, but that's what we do. And that's, that's just do. how it is. And it's kind of fun. So yeah. <laughs> um, and speaking of, Melbourne Sophie Lane was meant to be going really easy really cruisy and then she smashed out a PB and Gosh. I was so excited because I finished my race 
And I go to FaceTime Soph just to see how she's doing. I was like, oh, she's probably about to start. And I answer the phone and there's like this blurred footage of you like running through crowds. And I was like, what are you doing? You're like, oh, my race started half an hour early. I just got the times confused. So (laughs) it was a bit of a hectic start, which Sophie and I love a bit of chaos. So, you know, in true Strongest Ride style. But in the end, you smashed out a bloody PB. So what the heck? Look, I don't think I could have done it without the chaotic start. Yeah, um, that's it. Otherwise, I would have been too relaxed, too casual, yeah. but the lateness really stressed me out. So I think the <laughs> adrenaline just got me through. I reckon um, it might be a bit of a hack. Yeah. Well, before that, like I was just chilling, I was waiting around and I was watching all like thousands of half marathon runners like heading to the start. And I was like, guys, we've got 45 minutes. Can we all just relax? Like, I don't want to stand still in the line for 45 minutes. That's like silly. I'm gonna do my nice warm-up. I'm gonna relax, just hang out, taking all the scenery. And then I checked the times and I had eight minutes to start. And I had your bag and my bag <laughs> and nowhere to put them. So it was a bit of a rush, but I made it about five past eight, I think it was. Um and then it took me about seven Ks to like get through the back of the packers and kind of find my little groove and find my rhythm um so yeah first three k's were the slowest but that's okay kind of a nice warm-up that I missed um and then yeah just kept feeling good kept knocking over faster k's than I had planned and at first I was like oh probably a bit fast but like I felt good so I wasn't too worried the whole the whole plan with the run was to keep it easy and comfortable so that I recovered well and could just continue my normal training afterwards but the faster Ks just felt really comfortable and really good. So I just kind of kept going and they kept coming up and it was really consistent. And I just was enjoying the atmosphere, enjoying the pace, enjoying myself. So I just continued on and then, yeah, got what, 145, 30, something. 145, <laughs> I think it was. That's just a number, right? Seconds. It doesn't matter. That's right. I mean, <laughs> I should have broken 145 now, really. <gasps> oh. uh, but next time. Um, so yeah, really good. Like I still don't think I push myself it definitely wasn't just like an easy jog but I felt quite comfortable throughout so really pleased with that I think it was a good sign that my fitness was on track and everything was feeling good within my legs so yeah very pleased overall um the day after we did a nice little jog you were drowning in your sickness but we persisted anyway we you know what that second day the Tuesday <laughs> I don't think we've ever had such a long time silent Oh my gosh, I know. We we jogged for so long without speaking and it was just so weird. I was like, this does not feel normal, but like, let's just embrace it. And then it was just quiet for so long. We just plodded along and we just, yeah, it was interesting. But I'm proud of you for getting through that. Um, And then on the Wednesday, we were home and I did a nice 30K run. And loved it. Yeah. Racking up the case. The Ks are racking, you could say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, I just have had some gradual uh, increases in my Ks the last few weeks, building towards Bondi to Manly, hoping to do my longest training around this Sunday, about 45 to 50 Ks, maybe about, you know, five, five and a half hours. Um, And then it's taper time. Gosh, that is so far. Like when I think about us this time, a year and a half ago, we were so excited and terrified and just, I guess, uh, I'm part of me wants to say overanalyzing, but probably not overanalyzing, just like really thoroughly trying to figure out the best approach for us to prep for UTA 50K in the Blue Mountains, which is our first ultra. And 
here you are now. This will be your one, two, three, fourth run over, oh, yeah, over 50Ks, over the marathon distance. So we did UTA, we did the end peak. Backyard Ultra. Backyard Ultra. And then the backyard Ultra. Ultra. (laughs) (laughs) So four. So this will be number five. Yeah, well, you could basically call me a veteran. But yes, you are. (laughs) When you were saying about like us getting ready for UTA and how much big deal it was, but then comparing that to End Peak, which was like our second 50, Mm. we were just like, oh, cool. We're just going for a long run. Yeah. It's just 50. And it felt like it was just totally different mindset leading into that. So Mm. I think, same thing. Like once you've ticked off the barrier, it's like, oh, cool. I can just do that again. It's always the first time that's the hardest. Yeah. It is so interesting that mental barrier and obviously there's a huge physical component plus just the tactics of figuring out what you're going to do hydration wise what you're going to have in your pack what are you going to eat that aid stations shoes socks prepping for the terrain like there are so many logistical factors that affect you physically and affect your performance and the longer a race goes the harder it is to get to the end because the more just random stuff that can go wrong there's only so much that you can mitigate against but in saying that, obviously, just the whole headset of like, oh, I've run over 50Ks heaps before. Like, well, not over heaps, but like, <laughs> you know, you've run yeah. 50Ks before. So yes. this is just a little bit longer. And yeah. this is just a cruisy Sunday long run, right? 45, yeah. 50Ks, just knock it out. No worries. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to just seeing how it all feels, testing the gear and all of that. Um. And what gear? What I was going to can say. You run us? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I can. Uh, I've got my Salomon pack, which I got for UTA. So it's lasted me well. The 12 set, I believe. Um, I've got a bladder that's leaking. So that's not the best. Oh, you can tell um, we're not sponsored by any of these things. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, though? I do have some tailwind, which is the best. And you can save yourself 15% if you want some tailwind. Use our link below. It is delicious. I've just got the raspberry flavor, which I'm looking forward to testing out. Um, and then, yeah, just you know, the usual stuff in terms of gear. There's nothing really extraordinary. I think because this is a urban ultra. In fact, I saw something post about it being like the only ultra marathon running through a major city or something like that. So, you know, yeah. you could say I'm, what do they call it? A pioneer. Innovating. Pioneer. That's what I am. <laughs> Along with everyone else doing it. Um, but what I did want to ask was talking about shoes. Now this mm. run is probably like, 65 70% road oh. the last bit's trail so mm. what I'm actually I won't tell you my thoughts yet I'd like to hear your thoughts please what shoes shall I wear slash should I change shoes um firstly mm-hmm. it's hard and it depends oh, <laughs> but classic. I just had to put that in there because that's my answer to most things but um secondly it depends if you can drop your shoes at somewhere along the course now, I imagine you can't because you know the course. I reckon you could stash another pair of shoes <laughs> behind a rock near some trees or whatever, you know, have them on course, have them at an aid station. Surely that's a thing. You need to find that out. So I will head to the website at some point, figure that out for you. you know. <laughs> I can answer that for you right now. Yes, mm-hmm. you can. There is a bag drop oh. service and there will also be friends and family available for my every need. So that well, is an option. It. Okay. Well, I think because the last Ks are on trail, then put some trail shoes on. I think that feeling of changing shoes will also feel really good. Personally, I like the idea of not changing shoes if the terrain is mixed 
constantly and there's no sort of like roadblock and trail block and I've never done a race where I've changed shoes so I can't actually say about the experience but for some reason in my head just the idea of having to change shoes in a race just sounds like oh I don't have to take my shoes off and put new shoes on like I just don't want to do that but when I actually think about it more logically it makes so much sense to approach a really fresh fresh pair of socks shoes that are going to suit the last environment and it'll be like that thing in your head of like oh I've gotten to my shoe stop I've gotten to that shoe change I've <laughs> And I feel like it'll be a nice refresher, just like, you know, when you have your snacks and you're like, oh, I'm revived again. It'll be just like that. What do you think? I like it. No, I was just going to wear trail shoes the whole time because I didn't like the thought of changing shoes. And Mm. I thought if I sit down to take them Mm. off, put new ones Mm. on when I'm like tired, I just think it'll like slow me down and I won't want to get started again. But Mm. There is nothing better than like fresh socks and fresh shoes. <laughs> so maybe. What about fresh sheets? Well, like when you're running, yes. <laughs> sheets are less relevant. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it is nice. But then also like my feet weren't really very fresh. So I feel like the freshness <laughs> might be counteracted. <laughs> um, as soon so, as you put your feet in, the shoes will not be fresh anymore. The socks yeah, exactly. will be it's removed kind of a waste. from the freshness. <laughs> then I've got to wash two pairs of socks. <laughs> <laughs> I know. The washing when you get home oh, is an issue, gosh. Yeah. So I'm undecided, I think. So if oh. you're listening and you have any thoughts, mm. please let me know. Um, I'm not worried. Like, I know a lot of people don't run in their trail shoes on the road because it, like, wears them mm. down or whatever. But yeah, I'm not really worried about that. Uh, I just want to be comfortable and have l- the least amount of obstacles in my way. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And it's so interesting because I know that my advice is like change shoes, but I sort of feel like if it was me doing it, I'd be like, oh, I'm just going to wear one pair of shoes and not have any more. Cause like, it just seems simpler. But then I wonder if we're like overinflating that changing your shoes is a big deal. Like it mm. really would take maybe three minutes at the absolute most right yeah but when you're trying to set records three minutes is what well maybe three <laughs> minutes is too long maybe you need to get the stretchy laces maybe that's the hack the elastic that, laces that's that the, i hack. used to have elastic laces <laughs> oh, of course <laughs> yeah because you want to get your shoes on quickly you know yeah no that transition the transition mm, right. from, from i don't know what from my school uniform into my running shoes after school oh, was really important gotta be quick <laughs> Okay, well, leave it with me. Let me know your thoughts uh, below. But enough about my shoe changing and let's chat about today's episode. Let's do that. So we had Brody Sharp on the podcast, who was actually our first return guest. We had Brody on early last year and we'll actually link the episode for that down below so you guys can find if you want to hear more from Brody. But Brody is a runner. He's a physiotherapist. He's a podcast host himself, um, founder <laughs> of... A, a, podcast, podcast, <laughs> a podcast, a podcast, a podcast, a podcast host himself of the podcast called um, The Run Smarter Series. You guys might have heard of that. And he is now an author of The Run Smarter Book. So we were very excited to have him on because he really is a wealth of knowledge about injury prevention, running injuries, load management, training principles, recovery, just literally everything that you need to know about running. And his new book that he's just come, that he's just published is literally just that full guide of all the things that you almost would ever need to know when it comes to running. Yeah, I think it's such a good resource to have and you could just have that one book and you would be pretty set in terms of 
uh, your knowledge around running injuries and how to manage your training load and all those things that Lydia spoke about. Um, he dives into some details about how injuries actually develop in terms of macro versus micro damage, um, how to know when you should be pushing through a niggle. If you've got, you know, some aches and pains, is it worth resting or are you okay to continue through there? Um, we talk about the sweet spot in terms of training, sleep, recovery, foam rolling, all of those good things. Um, so yeah, it was a really cool chat. I think it'd be interesting actually to listen back to our first episode because that was very early days for us. So mm. hopefully this one is a little bit more fluid in terms of <laughs> our interview skills. Um, but Brody is just everything we asked him. He just had this amazing in detail, clear, concise answer. And yeah, we were just taking it all in. So would definitely recommend checking out his book if any of the topics in this chat were of interest to you. Mm, yeah, um, definitely. There's lots of practical tips as well from the episode as well. So yeah, so I think we'll probably leave it there. We can't wait to hear what you think of the episode and if you apply any of the principles that Brody has said, hopefully to help you out if you're struggling with any injuries at the moment or some niggles, or maybe you just want to be better prepared for any future battles that you might <laughs> battles in the war <laughs> in the war of running look running is dangerous but it's so much fun and we love it so thanks as always for listening don't forget to like subscribe share all those good things all those good things and thank you also for all the love and support that we get back every week and the lovely messages and shares on instagram and very very wonderful so thank yeah, you to everyone coming that's it <laughs> uh yeah enjoy catch you later right welcome back to the strong stride podcast today team we have Brody sharp on as our guest he's a runner a physiotherapist a podcast host of the run smarter series and now an author of the run smarter book welcome Brody. thanks for having me back on it's it's lovely to to be on excited to have a chat today yeah. yeah, it's super exciting. I think, yeah, you're our first repeat guest. So it's Ooh. nice to have you on again. I think we had a lot of good feedback from your first episode. So it's nice. I think people will be excited to see your name pop up again. So this will be a nice little part two. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you've been up to since we last spoke. Oh, quite a lot. So the <laughs> Run Smarter book was a project that I was dabbling for, I don't know, about six months, just sort of, oh, in my spare time, I'll just write a couple of chapters and quickly learned that it's a full-time job to try and write it. So <laughs> quickly moved to about six, between four to six hours a day working on it for about 10 to 12 months. And that was, wow. took up so much of my time, but <clears throat> was so happy just when it eventually got done. And yeah, now promoting it out, getting some fantastic feedback and uh, using it as a nice extension to the Run Smarter podcast and everything else that I do. So um, that's been taking up a lot of my time, but now I can have, I've got the book in my hands. I can actually mm. like, you know, have it as a bit of a, um, a reward for my hard work and yeah, it's all going quite well. Fantastic resource. I think obviously you've got tons of incredible episodes out there that people can listen to, but I think there's something about just having a physical copy in your hands. You can write notes, you can scribble all through it and there's so much information in there. So I think, yeah, it's going to be a really good resource for any runner. So well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Awesome. Um, if we can chat through, I guess, a couple of the key points, Lydia and I have had a really good look through the book. And I mean, there's just, as we've said, so much in there, you could do an episode per chapter, which is probably kind of like what your podcast does anyway. But if we can just go through, I guess, some of the points that stood out to us and and maybe some things that runners can take away um, from some of the lessons that you've learned throughout the book. And I think if we can start, I guess, with the whole 
adaptation to training and, and how that actually works. I think there was a few sort of key principles that you brought up within the book. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to discuss the whole thing about when a runner starts running, it's obviously really hard and a lot of people kind of drop out quite early, but there's obviously things that go on within our body throughout those early stages as we adapt to that training. Um, and if we can push through that first part, then it becomes a little bit easier. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what you found with that whole adaptation to running when you first start? Absolutely. Like as a general principle, adaptation is key for runners. It's, you know, we're always wanting to run further. We're wanting to run faster. We're wanting to prepare for a race. We want to just better ourselves and challenge ourselves. And all that comes with challenging the body and the body needs to get stronger in order to do so. Otherwise, if it's done too quickly, the body overloads and gets injured. And so that's just the key basic principles uh, that most runners need to understand. It's the body need to assign the certain conditions, you need to give the body the right environment. So it is challenging because we don't want to underload you or <clears throat> become complacent and just keep everything stagnant. If you want to get stronger and you want to get better, you have to push the envelope slightly without doing too much and just allow enough time for the body to say, that was hard workout. Let me get stronger because of it. Let me recover come back stronger and then do a little bit more next time. And it's just that little micro adjustment every single time over a, a longer period of time, just in that patient kind of process where you start to reap those rewards. But what we see with runners is that's not really the case where impatient or, you know, we have a race that's, you know, probably a little bit too close and we sort of push ourselves a little bit too much. We don't recover as much. And that balance, that, that sort of tipping point between, recovery and load just tips out of scale and then we start getting sore. And then when we start getting sore, we sort of ignore those symptoms and we sort of keep training, keep pushing, and then it develops into an injury. And so the very first principles I talk about in the book and in my podcast is trying to understand those principles as much as possible. We sort of look at it from a bird's eye view as a bit of a, um, a generic kind of response, but then we, if, if people want to delve in a little bit more nitty gritty, we sort of, you know, zoom in on exactly what's going on to get a bit more of an understanding. But essentially that's the key process that most runners need to know. If you want to change, if you want to increase your distance, if you want to increase your terrain, if you want to change to a different style of shoe, everything requires this little patient micro adjustment that, you know, allows the body to adapt, allows the body to get stronger, allows the body to just tolerate those different environments, different conditions. And yeah, the body does an extremely well job, uh, an extremely good job of changing and adapting as long as you allow the right circumstances. And why do you think it's so hard for runners to be patient and um, give it the time? Because it just seems to be everyone's undoing, isn't it? Like you get started and you get excited and you, and you do too much too soon. And it, yeah, it seems to be everyone experiences this at some point. Um, is it an ego thing or do you think maybe people just miss misunderstand running a little bit and think that it's just this basic thing. You put your shoes on, you just run like, you know, what can go wrong if you feel all right, just keep going. Like why, yeah. why is it so hard to adhere to that? It's, it's something that I've been trying to think about and understand over my years of being a physio and working with runners. It's, I do have a chapter in the book about personality and mm. personality types and what might lead to overuse injuries. Mm. And there's, there's a certain element of that. I think runners are a little bit more on the type A personalities, you know, data driven, um, 
wanting to like they're self-motivated wanting to push themselves um maybe can be a little bit impatient it's the sort of same traits that you have to become a runner and get up in the morning to run a long run even though it's wet cold rainy just because you have a marathon coming up and you want to you know put in those miles it's that self-motivation and drive that can bring you a bit undone when you do have an injury you know those same personality traits are more likely to that passion and that self-drive can turn quickly into stubbornness when you're injured it's just like ignoring it Mm. training through it training through pain you know you can grit through it and there's that element as well the nature of running it's like the impact on the ground and that repetitive nature is leads people to high injury rates just for whatever reason it might it could be the ground reaction force. It could be the amount of hours that we put in. It could be the the limitless nature of running as a sport. It's, I, I think, the combination of all those things. And I say as an example in my book, it's it's interesting that, say, if you're playing basketball, it goes for an hour. It's only ever going to go for an hour. You can mm. train, you can get stronger, you can do all these sort of things. But a runner or like, let's just say a basketball player wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I did really well, pushed myself as hard as I could for 60 minutes. Let me try to see how I can push myself for 90 minutes. Let's see how I can push myself for two hours, three hours, five hours. And that doesn't happen in, you know, the confines and parameters of many other sports, but mm-hmm. recreational running, people just, they run, they want to run faster. They want to run faster more times in, in the week. They want to run further. They want to, you know, train for more marathons. They want to, okay, I did a marathon this year. Let me try and do three next year. Then let me do an ultra. <laughs> then let me do a mountain mm-hmm. ultra. Let me, you know, it's, it's limitless and there's no cap on it. And so people just keep pushing, keep pushing until the body says no. And then the injuries sort of dictate your parameters. And then when you're back to pain-free running, you just got free reign until another injury. And so <laughs> that was, that's just me over the last couple of years trying to grip what what's going on it might be the nature of the sport itself and all those higher ground reaction forces mixed with personality and you know mm. all of these factors which you know i'm sort of coming understanding I'm, i talk with runners multiple runners like every day and i sort of get a lot of those personality traits they sort of come through a lot of people run for mental health and so when they are injured they still want that release they still need that um bout of exercise for mental health and so they're going to run through an injury it's it's simple as that because that's what they want to do they love it they're passionate it's a necessity for them and so getting to terms with all of these things is why running related injuries are so prevalent in this population yeah i think you've just made some really good points there and i i guess for every run it will be a little bit different but running definitely does have as you said, this limitless nature where you can just keep doing more and more. And it, it just made, I think, so for now I'm just sort of laughing a little bit there because you like you hear that as well. People do their first half marathon and they want to do their next marathon. And even I was talking to someone the other day and they're like, oh yeah, I really want to um, race two marathons this year because I haven't done that before. And then it's like, well, what's next year going to be? Is it going to be three yeah. marathons in <laughs> a year? And it's just continuous. And I think everyone can relate. And yeah, it makes me laugh a little bit because it's, it's quite funny when you think about it compared to other sports. Um, you do just keep wanting to do more and more. Um, are there any sort of cues for knowing if you're in sort of the sweet spot in terms of adaptation and like progressively loading but not overloading? Are there ways that we can sort of tell that we're doing the right amount? Like what what do you encourage runners to look out for? You can definitely know when you're not in the sweet spot. It's kind mm-hmm. of hard, I think, the sweet spot comes with seeing progress slowly over time. There is probably, if you do 
say a harder training session and you have maybe a little bit of muscle soreness the next day, but then you're better the day after that. I think that's a pretty good sign. You know, if I do a workout and I have all this DOMS in my, my body and then a couple of days later, I'm fine. I think that's a pretty good push myself so that I get sore, but don't get injured and sort of just treat that over a longer period of time. You know, you can easily know when you've done too much. It's <laughs> tendon stiffness. It's, you know, soreness, it's pain. It's like maybe DOMS, but lasting, you know, three, four, five days, it's sort of pushing the boundaries of muscle soreness into injury. And we know that the pain is all like niggles. We know that that's pretty common amongst runners and these sort of things just pop up as pain and then just go away, you know, within a couple of minutes, hours, or maybe 24 hours. And I actually wrote a chapter in the book trying to establish the difference between like an innocent niggle and an actual injury. And again, that's something that's not really medically defined, but me just trying to grasp how can I educate runners to give them the right guidance because someone who runs a marathon or an ultra, they know they get foot pain or, you know, back pain or like these random pains that sort of pop up everywhere. Should we make note of that? Um, But back to your question, like within this adaptation sweet spot, it's kind of this, this uh, middle ground where you feel like you're challenging yourself. Sometimes Um, you feel like your, your weekly mileage is slowly increasing. We feel like, you know, you're sort of pushing your capabilities a little bit um, and just, over time, if that 20 Ks per week turned to 22, turned to 25, turned to 30, like very, very slowly and gradually over time, that's probably a good sign that you're hitting that sweet spot. And if that intensity, the intensity ratio is correct, we know most people stick to that 80-20 intensity distribution, 80% being really easy and 20%, you know, allowing time to push your capabilities and sort of push the envelope a little bit. Those can be really nice metrics um, to follow. And yeah, it's just following that nice steady path over time. And if you see those results, if you see like you're getting better, if you're feeling recovered, fresh, ready to train, energetic, um, all those sort of, I guess, behaviors and mindsets towards training, if that's still there, then probably hitting a really nice spot. Like I said, it's very hard to know when you're in the sweet spot, very easy to know when you're not and when you've overloaded things. Mm. You mentioned in there too about the intensity and a lot of runners doing the 80-20 sort of split. In terms of monitoring this training load, so I guess we can gauge where we're at. A lot of people just track their Strava. And as you mentioned before, you know, doing 22, 22 one week, 25 the next, that sort of thing. Are there other ways that we should be measuring or monitoring our load rather than just kilometers per week? Because as you said, like running a really high intensity session is probably a different load to just doing a really easy recovery run. So how should how should people monitor their load? I think everyone should get used to um, having an internal perception of effort when they run. I think everyone just like when they're running middle of the run, how am I feeling? What, what is it like out of 10? Don't constantly think about it, but um, either have that perception during the run or assign a certain effort level before your run and say, this is what I'm going to stick to because this is what my plan is for the day. That has some really profound differences or really profound effects in a number of ways. One, if you have a certain intensity effort that you want to aim for, that can dictate the pace based on temperature, based on terrain, based on your recovery. You might not have slept well. You might've been stressed. Um, and you might say, okay, um, the aim of today's session is to keep to a, a three out of 10 intensity, really easy. And you might say, I might start off at like a five minute 30 pace. But you might start that five minute, 30 pace and say, 
you know what? It's actually feeling a bit harder than what I thought it was today. Maybe I haven't recovered as much. Maybe that session yesterday was a little bit too much. So let me back off the pace and let me do a six minute pace. And so you're using your internal perception of effort to dictate how fast you go. So it's not, some people can just follow speed or follow pace as a, an intensity, or some people follow heart rate as an intensity, but I think we can, we're missing a few pieces if we're not correlating that to effort levels. And so most people, when it comes to that 80, 20, if you are at a, the 80% of your weekly volume should be at a four or less. And, you know, this is where it gets to a bit of uh, practice and training because most people won't, if they haven't done rate of perceived exertion or RPE before, they're not going to know what uh, a four is like compared to a five, but there are some really nice graphs and descriptive things. Well, it is in the book, but you can also Google like RPE out of 10 and then just have a look at some of those metrics and they use, I guess, the ability to talk or whistle or sing or those sorts of things to see where your effort levels are like. But, you know, it comes with practice. And then with enough practice, you know, you can run and say, I feel at about a four, I feel at about a five, I feel at about a, a three. And you can start correlating that to a lot of your training efforts. Yeah, I think definitely something to practice. And I guess um, depending on the sort of training background people have, like some training groups, coaches will, I guess, talk about their RPE, rate of perceived exertion. But I think other sort of sessions and different different backgrounds, people more focus on heart rate. Others are more looking at kilometers. Like there's so many different ways to sort of track, I guess, effort levels. So I think it definitely gets confusing for a lot of people. Do you think though, like you sort of said, like, you know, when people actually go for a run, they should just think in their head, okay, what is the goal of this? How do I actually feel? Is part of that about trying to sort of be in tune with the body? Like, do you think there's an issue with runners becoming too reliant on numbers and data? Because as we've sort of spoken about, there's that personality trait, potentially this type A group of people being drawn to running and, you know, we like the data, we like the numbers. Do you think that's sort of an issue in itself, just being sort of too obsessed with the numbers we forget to pay attention to our body? And then that is related to our sort of injury pathway and sort of reluctance to pay attention to those niggles as well? Or do you also just like the paying attention because you think it's a more accurate way of measuring exertion? I I think it depends on your personality and you really need to self-reflect on what is the data and metrics in your current approach really serving you? Because Mm. some people like the data and they use it as a really useful tool and they, they can use it as a injury prevention measure and that's all they use it for. But you have those other personalities that know they're going to post it onto Strava. (laughs) They know their friends are going to see it. And therefore we should try a little bit harder to impress them. Or I don't want to post a really easy run um, because, you know, I'm going to look like lazy or whatever they tell themselves. But a lot of people slowly start to morph into that sort of personality of the competitiveness and, um, or it might not even be competitiveness. It might just be recognizing that your friends are going to see this workout if you post it and the heart rates and how fast the pace, how far you've ran, and then you post it. And if it's impressive, everyone comments and says, oh, wow. And they like it. And then, you know, it sort of feeds this sort of trait to do better next time. And all of a sudden you just, you just always training at your hardest or you're just always doing a little bit too much than you should and overload injuries around the corner. And so you really need to, I guess, self-reflect on, okay, this is the data I'm using. 
is it really serving me or have I pushed myself? Have I constantly got injured because I'm striving to impress people or impress myself or stick to the numbers or get better numbers and see where, what the, the data is doing for you. But again, leading back to your question about the perception and listening mm. to your body, you kind of need a combination of the two. Mm. If you want to, if you want to really follow things, you can't just follow the numbers because mm. your body can send you signals. Your body can tell you that you've under recovered and you do need to take a rest day or have a day off or just slow things down the data won't say that the data won't reveal that unless you really pay attention to your effort levels while you're running. And so the combination of the two are really important. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And I think we hear this quite a lot for someone who likes the science and the numbers. And obviously Soph and I have backgrounds in science and we all do like you like the objectivity of data. And I think it'd be so nice to just, okay, I follow what my root band says or what my blah, blah, blah. And then I know exactly what to do, but I guess nothing in life is, is just the science. There's always the art part of the science too. So um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Would we be able to talk a little bit about tissue capacity? Um, something you were saying before about, you know, a little bit of DOMS post hard session lasts for a day, maybe two, and then you sort of feel quite good and then you freshen up and you sort of back to normal. And and then there's the other side of it when you have sore legs after a session and they don't really heal and then you run again and they get sore. Um, would you be able to talk us through a little bit about what's actually happening happening on a tissue level? And so the difference between, you know, healthy, normal muscle DOMS, maybe some like microscopic tissue damage, and then how that can sort of progress into potential injury if it's taken a little bit too far. First of all, we all need to recognize how important the capacity is like i always say to my runners and the listeners of the podcast you know just imagine that every tendon ligament bone uh muscle have a certain capacity and we want to make sure that we respect that capacity and don't push it beyond because then it develops an injury but it's not really that simple we kind of want to push it because the that's how you get stronger you need to exceed its capacity, not too much. So it develops an injury straight away, but you need to push that capacity just that little bit. You need to sort of go into that gray zone, then recover afterwards. The recovery afterwards is crucial. Um, so you really need that fine balance. And if someone's running every day, that's where that 80, 20 balance comes into it because that 80% is almost, you, you can recover within that 80%. And then that 20% is sort of pushing into that gray area. Um, in that tissue level, um, I used Chris Brammer's research um, in my book and chatted to him about it on my podcast as well. And he uses those particular phases of, yes, when you push the envelope and you are a little bit sore, you are experiencing this little micro damage within the muscles, the tendons. If you can just think about it that way, you're sort of stressing it there's a little bit of damage that goes on, but it's a necessary damage to get stronger. But that damage needs that recovery afterwards in order to get stronger because you don't get stronger during your hard workouts. You get stronger after those hard workouts when you have adequate recovery. And so if you don't do that, or if you you know, do another harder session the next day without that recovery, or if within that one session, it's too much. It goes from micro damage to macro damage. And that's just that little bit more. It's a little bit too excessive and you either need a lot more recovery afterwards, or you just need time off or, you know, or you start getting sore straight away or you start getting injured straight away. So that macro damage um, could be that 
that sort of tipping point between good and an injury. And if you go beyond that again, and some people do that within one session, some people do that within a couple of sessions, some people do that over weeks. It's, it's sort of like this ever evolving sort of phase, but you go from micro damage to macro damage straight away to tissue failure. And that's just a, a full blown injury. That can be a muscle tear. That can be a tendinopathy. That can be, you know, any, any injury that you sort of see presented. And like I say, that can happen in a very short period of time. It can happen within hours. It can happen within days. It can happen within weeks. It's that sort of balance between the two. How much are you working? How much recovery are you getting? What are your sort of signs and symptoms? And are you accurately interpreting those symptoms? Are you paying attention and proactive with those symptoms? And that can be the real tipping point between, okay, am I getting stronger or am I getting injured? And that's where runners need to educate themselves. That's, you know, that's sort of why I'm here. I'm helping people run smarter, train smarter, and sort of understand those and interpreting those signs and signals. And yeah, it's really important. And Mm. the training itself needs to be modified if you are starting to get into those macro damage sort of phases. The right interpreting and being proactive as soon as possible is really crucial. Yeah, I think that's such an important message. And something that we always forget is the actual gains that we're making don't happen during the run. Mm. It happens while we recover. I think that's just something to to highlight because it's really easy to think that you're only making progress while you're doing the work and doing the hard stuff, but it's really in between those efforts that the, the magic happens. So I think that's a really, really important thing to um, for everyone to note. Now, you mentioned that obviously we've got this progressive overload and then when we do too much, then the injuries start to happen. But what other factors kind of play into the injury? Obviously, things like stress and sleep are starting to be a little bit more talked about in terms of their relation to injury. And it's not just a matter of doing too much. There's actually other factors. How do you see stress and sleep playing into the whole injury um, dynamic? Massive. Um, I referenced several studies in the book about the link between sleep and injury. A lot of research done, particularly around adolescence, but this slowly starting to emerge some really robust studies with adults as well. But there's a huge correlation. If you've, if you have lack of sleep, uh, you need to either back off your training or an injury is around the corner. And we we've talked about the importance of recovery here. You know, you need to stress your body, strain your body, challenge it within that, that right zone, but then you need recovery on the back end in order to get stronger. That's how that cycle um, needs to happen. And sleep is the best recovery tool you have. I spoke to Shona Halson on the podcast and she's a researcher on, she's worked with Olympians and, She's um, very, very proficient, world-renowned for recovery. And she said that if you have all these recovery tools, you have, say, hot, cold therapies, foam rolling, stretching, like massage guns, a massage itself, like all of these remedies and modalities, if you combine all of those together, stack them all up, they would, wouldn't come close to the power of sleep. And so you have some people waking up half an hour earlier just so they can do a foam rolling session before they run. And my advice is you stay in bed. If you sleep an extra half hour, that is, you know, really, really important. And this is why we see that correlation between lack of sleep and an injury. And it's essentially because if you have certain stress within the body, if you have, if you go to exercise, you start releasing exercise hormones and 
it circulates through the body to, you know, increase the heart rate, increase the sweat rate, sort of um, get you primed for exercise. And when it does that, you can't really adapt. You, you need that, you need everything to settle back down. You need your hormones to settle down and you need to get into a rest and recovery mode in order to do all those things. And so sleep, when you get into sleep, you sort of settle everything down and, you know, that's when all that, that magic happens. But when it comes to things like stress, if you exercise and all those hormones are being released, priming you for action, priming you for, you know, <clears throat> movement. And then after that, you go into a stressful work or stressful family environment, or, you know, you're worried about something. Those same hormones are still circulating around the body. The heart rate is increased. You're worried, fearful, whatever it might be. Um, those hormones are still circulating in the body and the body isn't getting in that, into that recovery mode because the body doesn't recognize whether you have to, whether you see danger or whether you're running from danger or, you know, those sorts of things, the body still has the same response in terms of the hormones that it releases. And so people are saying, I'm getting, getting these overuse injuries all the time, but I'm training sensibly. Um, what do you think's the wrong? I keep getting to a certain mileage where my body just breaks down and you say, okay, so the load side of things is fine. Let's look at the other side of the equation, which is recovery. How are you sleeping? What are your stress levels? You know, and then that's when everything comes out of, oh, moving house, just got a newborn baby, just got a job promotion, less sleep, more stress. And you're saying, okay, so you're getting to a certain point where your training load, your weekly training load can't be surpassed if you, unless you enhance your recovery. That equation just is just getting too disrupted if you continue to train unless you enhance your recovery. People can see a correlation there all the time. And so that's where the importance of sleep Stress and training load all need to, you know, sort of be influenced. We need, need to consider all those pieces of the puzzle if you want to continue pushing the envelope. Yeah, definitely. And no, I think that's super important. I think it's probably really common too, that whole like getting up half an hour to foam roll before you run, missing out on sleep. I'm sure so many people would be doing that and not realizing the potential damage or risk that they're putting themselves under by, by missing those, those precious minutes of sleep. I think it's super important, especially if you've got a busy working life and family life, like sleep is already probably quite compromised. So making sure you're maximizing that is a really good tip. Yeah. I think. And there's, uh, I'll say as well, like if there's certain scenarios, if you're training for a marathon and it's two or three months away and you have to move house, or if there's some stressful scenarios in your life, don't continue pushing the envelope and following that plan, just recognize, okay, unless my recovery enhances, I need to um, back off things a little bit. This is like one or two weeks where I just, I'm not recovering well. I've recognized not recovering well. Let me just pull back a little bit because most people ignore those things mm. and they, they continue pushing and then that's when they get injured. So it's having the, the sensible nature, making those right decisions, training smarter, I would say, and pushing back really um, recognizing this is not the time to push the envelope, at least to stay consistent. If it's, let me just repeat what I did last week. So I'm not pushing things and continue striving, but until my sleep gets better, until my stress levels come back under control, that's when I can, you know, get back into that training. Yeah. It makes so much sense, but I think definitely even coming back to the personality types that are drawn to running you you really have to let go of this sort of perfect training block don't you and consider that you're a human and there's so much more to your life than just running and just what your what Strava says and what that graph says and you have to make allowances for all these different things which is definitely easier said than done so I guess coming back to like 
you know, what our tissues can handle and, you know, going from like being fatigued to then overtraining and I guess thinking about making sure we're getting our recovery. Um, let's say, you know, we're, we're getting our recovery, we're monitoring our load, all those things. Um, how can we tell when we're actually in a run, if we are getting some sort of pain or niggle or some symptoms, how can we tell what is something to push through and something that is not to push through? Because I think a lot of runners struggle with that. It's like, it's just a, a niggle, it'll go away. Um, and if there's nothing that, they, that have jumped out, like they haven't done extra volume, they've got their sleep, they can't see too much going on there. What about those actual symptoms? How can we assess them and determine if they're an issue concerning blah, blah, blah? What, what are your thoughts on that? I did struggle with defining what is an innocent niggle and a, an injury that sort of needs to be assessed or, you know, drastic measures need to be taken. Um, I don't know why. There's certain niggles that are just a phenomenon. Like someone would say, I, I talked about in the book, I was running when I started doing long runs, I finished one of my, I think it was a 15 K run with severe elbow pain. And I had no idea why. And I think it was because I, I just wasn't used to having my elbow bent in that position for that period of time, but straightening out my elbow was like a seven or an eight out of 10. It was phenomenal. I, I had no idea why. And then it was just fine afterwards. Like, I don't know, these things happen, but I think <laughs> I know. I know. And I made it, all it took was like, you know, 10 minutes of me just bending and straightening my elbow and it just went away. But, you know, niggles happen to the feet, knees, calves, elbows, elbows yes, <laughs> necks, backs, all these sorts of things. It doesn't discriminate. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, would I say I need to go to a physio and get that assessed? No, because it happened once and it went away and never came back again. So um, I do define in the book uh, the differences between DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, and an injury. There are certain, there's overlapping characteristics, but there are some characteristics that you really need to pay attention to. Um, niggles aside, we'll talk about that in a second, but DOMS is delayed, as it says in its name, it's delayed onset. So if, you, if a, something arises during a run, that's not DOMS, that's something you need to pay attention to. And it's muscle soreness, delayed onset muscle soreness. So it will appear in the muscle belly or it's this very vague sort of location where you can't really pinpoint it with a finger. It's, you know, a, a bit more widespread uh, around the muscle belly. Whereas if you're pointing to a tendon or if you're pointing to bone or if you're pointing to a ligament, that's something that's not DOMS because that delayed onset muscle soreness is sort of the good pain. It's what we want. It's how we get stronger. But Anything else other than that, if the location's a little bit different, if the onset is a little bit different, um, that's where we need to, you know, pay extra attention. But we do know that some injuries are also delayed. We know that tendinopathies, if you, if you overload your Achilles, you might not notice it during the run. You might not even notice it after, like later on that day, you'll, you might, you'll probably notice it the next morning when you uh, get out of bed and start moving around and, so that's where the duration, that sort of stuff can overlap, but that's where the location comes into it. Okay. What's the characteristics? Okay. It's stiffness and it's in my tendon. Um, okay. Well, maybe it's not this good DOMS. And so there are overlapping characteristics, but there are certain um, characteristics that we, that do sort of separate between the two. And then we have the niggle side of things, which can happen during a run and can be in a ligament, tendon, muscle, can be pinpointed, but, you know, just 
like I say, it just goes away without any intervention and never to return. So we wouldn't necessarily run to a physio and get that assessed. And so a niggle isn't medically defined. It's, you know, it's just a certain vague terminology that some people use. And I've tried in my book to say, okay, this is how I would like to explain niggles. This is like sort of my definition and um, what you should pay attention to. And the advice I say is if you do notice a niggle in a run, notice where it is, notice how long it lasts for, and notice like the characteristics. What's, is it pain? Is it burning? Is it pins and needles? Is it tingling? Is it, um, and what's it like out of 10? Is it a one? Is it a five? Is it a, and just make a mental note. That way, if it comes back, then we can know, okay, maybe it's something to pay more attention to because it could be foot pain, five out of 10 sharp, um, but last five seconds and just went away. You know, let's not, run to a physio, but let's just make a mental note. And so next time if I run and it's totally gone away, maybe it's less of a concern, but if it happens again a week later and doesn't last five seconds, it lasts 30 seconds. And instead of a five out of 10, it's an eight out of 10. Maybe that's something I need to become more concerned about. And then if that thing keeps coming back and you notice within like a couple of weeks, it's still there, get it assessed because the odds of it coming back in the future, coming back more severe is a lot higher. And so we don't want to get to that situation. So recognizing, just making little mental notes of characteristics and duration and location and those sorts of things. And if it's only happened once, never to return, don't worry. But if it keeps coming back and those characteristics become more severe, definitely get it assessed. That's sort of where my rational sort of position is. Mm, no, that's good. I think those those characteristics you mentioned are really good for people to look out for because often you you just feel something and you and you're just like, oh, it's just a pain. I'm not really sure what it means. But if you can think about those things, so the, the frequency or duration, the location of it, and I guess how intense the pain is, they can sort of help you determine how how severe it could be. So I think that's really useful for people to think about. I think what's really coming up quite frequently is is just being aware of your body and, and being in tune and listening to your body. Um, so that's a really good message to pass on. I think what then tends to happen is if people do get to the point where they are injured, they've had something that's really painful for a long time and they go and see someone and they've officially got an injury diagnosed. What people tend to do then is just have a complete rest or they just completely stop running because running obviously hurts them so that they think that's the best answer. What do you think the the risk or I guess the not even necessarily risk, but why shouldn't people just completely rest and stop doing everything that they're doing? What's kind of the, the weakness or downward spiral that you mentioned in the book? How does that relate? It relates because when you are injured, you still want to stimulate that, that area to get stronger or at least preserve a lot of the strength that it, that it currently has. The tricky part is finding out, okay, what is that current adaptation sweet spot? Because we know the benefits of, hitting that adaptation sweet spot. That was the first thing we talked about, but a lot of people need to recognize that when they're injured, they still have a sweet spot. It's just a little bit more sensitive and a little bit lower on the scale than where you were pre-injury. When it's sensitized, when it's painful, it does have the perception of weakness just because the pain itself, like, you know, inhibits certain things or maybe your behavior, you're less likely or a bit more apprehensive to sort of use that area. And that's why rehab's so good and physios can prescribe something and build up that, that confidence and build up that capacity. But you need to find where that new sweet spot is. And that is very rarely complete rest. If it's really irritable and really tender or really painful, yes, you might have some time off, but it might be two to three days. 
let things settle down and then try and see where that sweet spot is. And that's only for severe cases. I guess the exception to the rule would be stress fractures. Um, we rest those for the most part. Um, we used to put people in casts and say, just totally not like, don't use that area, use crutches or whatever, but we're less likely to do that these days. It's relative rest. You can still sort of load the bone a little bit and sort of, unless it's a complete fracture, but you know, we're starting to slowly become more attuned to what load can be tolerated, but stress fractures aside, most running related injuries, you can still load it. It's just trying to find that sweet spot. And if you don't find that sweet spot and just treat it with complete rest and say, my body does a great job of healing on its own. If I just let it do its thing, let me stop running, let me stop exercising and let's wait until I'm better before I start running. The dangers of doing that is you're already in a weakened sensitized state. If you treat that as such with more complete rest, then you're further weakening that muscle and weakening the rest of the body because you're just taking complete time off. And so what I have labeled the, the pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral is that if you, if you target or if your intervention is complete rest, then that further weakens the capacity, weakens its you know structure to tolerate load. And then if you get back to running and it, it, you easily overdo it because it is weaker, you sort of say, all right, my calf is better. Let me just go back to my 5K run. I'll be slow, um, but let me see how it goes. And then that injury flares up again, triggers more pain, triggers more sensitivity, reduces that capacity once again. So that sweet spot is dropping even further down. And then the runner says, oh, I'm just not better yet. I just probably need another week off, take another week off and that downward spiral continues. And so the proactive measures as early as possible is to try and catch that sweet spot and say, okay, I probably can't tolerate running. Most people can, but if I can't tolerate any amount of running, Maybe I can do some calf raises. Maybe I can do some strength work. Maybe I can do some cycling or cross training or, you know, find something. And if you're not sure what to do, that's where a health professional can provide that, those guidelines, but it's being as proactive as you can to find that sweet spot, interpret the symptoms to make sure that bout of exercise has been tolerated and then slowly build your way up that spiral. And that's essentially what rehab is. It's essentially what managing your injury is involved with. And I work with, you know, hundreds of runners with different injuries and it all just follows this same principle. Okay. Let's find where your sweet spot is and let's find how you, what you can tolerate and let's build up from there and let's bridge the gap between what you can currently tolerate and back to running. And then if you do get back to running or if you can still run, let's bridge the gap between what you can currently tolerate and whatever goal you have. And um, it just, follows those simple guidelines mm, no that's good I think that um yeah it makes a lot of sense I think it's good to have someone to help guide that as well someone that knows what they're talking about and someone that's just an outsider as well what rather than you trying to figure it out can be quite hard so if you can just talk to someone that knows a little bit about injuries and things that can that can be really helpful but yeah I think it's a bit of a relief for people to know that in most situations they don't need to just completely stop it's just about as you said, just finding that sweet spot. So that's super helpful. Um, if we can just move a little bit over to talking about goals, you mentioned a couple of principles in your book surrounding goals that I thought were quite interesting. Um, a few of them being clarity, challenge, commitment, feedback, and complexity. Now, I think often when we talk about goals, it's always, you know, you hear about the smart, smart goals and it's all very kind of rigid and, and specific. But I think some of those principles that you mentioned were quite interesting and something that you talk about is, 
not just having a goal being, I just want to run my best, just being a little bit more, I guess, um, specific or clear about that. Do you want to talk a little bit about your, your thoughts around goals? I think, yes, the smart goals are fine. I, I think if you have a, a clear goal in mind with a sensible sort of time frame, you do want to highlighting that and having a goal put in place will help the success of the goal. Like if you just say, oh, I just want to train for a marathon, um, you know, you can probably get there, but like, uh, do you have any parameters around it? Like, is it a, a marathon under a certain time? Do you just want to run continuously? Do you want to follow complete a marathon with a certain walk run structure? Um, you know, do you have an A goal? Do you have a B goal or a C goal? Like all those sorts of things are measures that you can put in place to help your success because some people can originally say, okay, I just want to do an entire marathon continuously and not have any walk breaks. And they sort of just think about it, put it in their mind, but never really assign it. And then all of a sudden when things get a bit too hard, they say, oh, you know, I could probably walk a little bit. And then they end up like, you know, those things are okay. But if you had that certain roadmap in place to achieve a certain thing, then it can be the odds of it being successful um, are heightened. And yes, the things like complexity can come into it. Some runners might only be running for, you know, a couple of months and they've just started doing their walk run program, maybe to a 5k. And then all of a sudden they have a marathon goal and that's pretty common. But I think most people need to have a, a few more goals in there. Otherwise, like who knows, like if you finish doing a 5k and your first 5k is 30 minutes, who knows what sort of, what's a good marathon time for you. You know, you can assign that, but you have, you'd be going in blind and have no real idea. So if it's too complex, then it's, it's going to steer you astray. You're not going to know how to actually work towards that goal. You're not going to be able to put the right stepping stones in place to eventually get there. Cause you're not going to really know how, um, how you're going to respond. And so if you go from a 5k, say I've done that. What about 10k? That's a little bit more realistic. You can sort of predict a few more stepping stones and have a bit more of an accurate goal. And then you can reevaluate how that 10k goes and then probably go from there to the half marathon. And, you know, if things are too complex, you, you become a little bit paralyzed or you fall astray. You, f- you fall off that roadmap pretty quickly. And then you're just fumbling around. What should I do? What should I change my goals? Or should I move, you know, or should I just wing it? And when people start winging it, that's when people start getting injured because the, the roadmap's changed. And now you just defined goals and the plan itself is ill-defined and you know you're not um if you lack structure like we've said you need to pay attention to your body you need to train sensibly you need to have the right time frames in mind it's a patient game to get stronger and to become a better runner so you need to make sure that you're respecting all those things and all those things come with goals you know it's um if you fall ill of the plan then you're setting yourself up for a likelihood of injury and a likelihood of not succeed, ex, not being successful with your goals. Yeah, that's cool. I think, um, yeah, I think all of those factors and those those sort of baby steps or, or mini mini steps along the way makes it a lot easier to to manage. I think it can be quite overwhelming if you're yeah you are going from a five k park runner to then wanting to do a marathon. It can seem really exciting at the time, but then actually putting that into practice is quite overwhelming. So breaking that down, um, I think, will be really helpful. Yeah, totally agree. Um, it's something else that Sophie and I were really interested in chatting about. And I guess it sort of almost comes back to this recurring theme of like finding that sweet spot 
of being patient and letting your body adapt. Um, what about when it comes closer to race day and we're thinking about tapering? Um, are there certain things that we can look out? I think a lot of runners hate the whole taper process because again, most people who are drawn to running uh, always want to be sort of working towards things, working towards goals. So then the idea of like deloading and, and tapering is quite challenging, probably mentally more than physically. But um, so I guess on the reverse side of it, how can we know that we're like signs for us to look for in our body that we're actually tapering well um, and sort of, I guess, cues for that and things, things to look out for. Yeah. There's, this is something that I didn't really know much about before writing the book and I strategically um, started talking to some experts uh, about tapering um, and I interviewed them on my podcast and sort of used that as content and then looked at what research was out there and used that and sort of combined a lot of things um, to write a chapter in the book about tapering. And it's, it's very common, like, again, back to personality traits, a, a lot of people have fear of losing fitness. And that's why the tendency to run through an injury is pretty common. It's people just don't want to lose the gains that they've made over, they've worked so hard over several months, and then they just don't want to be derailed with, with an injury and lose a whole bunch of fitness. Um, and so when it comes to a taper, those same fears kind of just like start surfacing. It's why would I back off my mileage considerably? I'm I'm going to lose fitness. And there's some really, really good research to show if you taper right and if you follow the right sort of balance and the right duration, you're going to perform better. Like the idea of the taper is to perform at your best on a certain day is trying to use the recovery, use the adaptation, use the right method so that you're feeling super fresh and super fit on that day. So you can have this peak performance on one particular day. That's what the tape is set up to do. And really good research to show that if you don't do a taper and if you do a taper, you're going to, um, the taper group is going to perform better on race day. And that's just because you've had that time to rejuvenate and um, the body's had time to sort of bounce back from this chronic, slight chronic overload the entire time. And the parameters that you can follow, most research will say that, say that the duration should be like, you know, somewhere between seven to 14 days. And so 14 days can seem huge for some runners, like having time off or backing off for 14 days. That's, that's a lot, but um, the volumes and the intensity distribution, those sorts of things can um, just be fluctuated a little bit. So, you know, in that first maybe four to five days of the training, you probably reduce your overall volume by about 20%. And then in that sort of a week out from the marathon, you might reduce your overall volume by about 50%. And that sort of guideline is um, showing up in the research to sort of be that sort of healthy middle ground. You don't want to have complete time off, but you don't want to sort of train around 90% either because you know you, you want that, you want to recover. But interestingly, the intensity can still be in there and it should be in there. Um, and I talked to Jason Fitzgerald on the podcast and he, um, he hosts the Strength Running podcast. And he uh, was saying that, you know, you don't lose fitness, that cardiovascular fitness, you can maintain for quite a long time. Uh, but the power side of things, that stiffness, rigidity, the, the elasticity of your body, 
that can probably, um, you can lose that quite quickly. And so we maintain that by doing our harder sessions, our, our strides or our, our short interval sessions. And so during the taper, you back off the overall volume but that intensity, that short intensity can still be in there. So that those strides are shorter sessions that are running a, a little bit faster, maybe hill repeats, those sorts of things that helps preserve a lot of that elasticity and um, efficiency in your running. And so that's another principle that people can just add in there, back off the volume, keep the intensity. Um, and, you know, that still leaves you enough, a lot of recovery time to still stay fresh. And, you know, the odds of you performing at your best on race day, which everything needs to click into place when it comes to race race day, not just the taper, but, you know, nutrition and all that sort of thing. But um, yeah, if you follow those guidelines and sort of listen to your body, I think people, you know, you kind of use it as a, a little experiment. You follow these guidelines, which I explained in the book, they're sort of generic guidelines for you to follow. And that's where you should start. But then the next race, um, you can sort of test and tweak a little bit, see if that naturally if that fits you, um, you might want to keep a little bit more intensity or, you know, instead of reducing your volume by 50%, maybe do 40 or maybe do 60 or, you know, just sort of play around with what works for you because these guidelines are generic. It's good to, to start with them. You should, you always need to start with them, but then everything is just a little test and tweak from there. You can play around with your hydration, nutrition, fueling, all that sort of stuff. Um, to try and hone in on a, on a nice race day, but that takes time. You know, it might take 10 marathons for you to slightly test and tweak and hone in on what's best for you, but you're not going to learn unless you experiment and unless you're sort of, you know, data driven people. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's, let's follow that as an experiment. Let's keep moving forward to maybe get a little bit better next time. Mm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think the, the practice of it too, because everyone's going to respond just a little bit differently. Um, so if you can get a chance to try it out at a few different races and, and tweak it for you, it makes a lot of sense. What do you think the risk would be for someone to, because I guess this is what, and, and as you said, cardiovascular fitness isn't going to disappear, but for those who are quite fearful of losing fitness, um, what are the risks of sort of tapering too hard? Are there any, or is that just a myth? As in backing off, like too much, doing more of the rest or doing too much, too much rest. Like if we go, okay, 14 days taper, I normally run hundred Ks a week. I'm going to run 15 Ks each week. Like, what do you, like, is there an issue with that? Or is this, is there still going to be some performance enhancements? Maybe just not as much if we've done a little bit more or are people actually going to have lost fitness? What do you think? I don't think a loss of fitness, but becoming like unaccustomed would, would be something that it's probably not the cardiovascular fitness or your VO2 max that drops, but probably just the body um, losing the, memory of like working at those effort levels um mm. you know it's hard it's really hard to say like what what's actually at play um mm. all we know is that there's been studies of people doing 80 percent tapers and 20 percent tapers and 50 percent tapers and the 50 percent tapers like come out on top they you put them through a marathon and they'll they'll get better results um mm. what's actually going on it's hard to say will you lose fitness if you have if you're bedridden for seven days, you'll lose fitness. Um, if you are relative rest for over two weeks, you'll probably lose fitness. But 
most people aren't bedridden. Like when they rest, they're, they're walking around they're maybe doing some cross training. They're going upstairs. They're like doing all mm-hmm. these sorts of things. And like, that's at least something to preserve. Um, it's really easy to preserve things. It's, it's hard to gain easy to maintain is what I say. Going back to injuries. If someone hasn't has knee pain and they can't run and they can't do stairs, but if they're walking around and they're sort of getting sitting down, standing up, sort of, you know, doing some wall sits or something so easy to preserve that strength. Um, but if they put you in a cast and you're in a cast and can't move your knee for five days, you're going to get a lot of muscle wasting because you've just totally stopped using it. Mm. Um, so, you know, back to the taper, cause we've sort of gone on tangent there. Um, it depends what you do in that taper. And like, if you're doing some sort of cross training, if you want to take 14 days off and, you know, really back off your training, I'd, I'd probably suggest do some cross training or at least just maintain some volumes just so you just remember how to run and that sort of stuff you probably won't lose that much fitness but you, you it's probably we don't want to be too excessive with our rest either it's about finding that perfect balance mm, yes exactly the sweet spot i think that's going to be the title of this episode <laughs> <laughs> that's so good i think um we might wrap it up there i think we'll let you get on with your day but thank you so much for all of that information and and your time as well um obviously people can listen to the podcast as always there's always episodes on there you've now got a youtube channel that people can check out as well if they want more of a visual and different different form of content and of course the run smarter book um where's the best place for people to access the book uh, they can get it wherever they get online books. Um, you Perfect. won't be able to find it in stores anywhere. It's just Amazon, uh, Booktopia, and like anywhere there's there's an online bookstore, you, you should be able to find Run Smarter. And yeah, uh, follow the labels, Run Smarter on YouTube, Run Smarter on the podcast. And um, yeah, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Uh, I do have Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions, let me know. Yeah. Awesome. We'll link all of that below so people can go directly to you if they've got questions and want to work with you for sure. Cause um, as we mentioned, you've do treat a lot of patients online through your physio services. So it doesn't have to be anyone that's local to you it can be anywhere around the world. So that's awesome. People can check that out and yeah, get to know you a bit better if they've got any questions. Thank you so much for coming on Brody. We, um, Thanks for having me on guys. Yeah. We're stoked to chat with you. Thank you so much. Bye.